Romans 3, verses 9 to 26. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance... He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If you're taking notes, just a reminder that you'll find uh, the handout was in the leaflet that you would have received at the door. Now, last week, I, uh, I concluded our time Uh, with a story, didn't I? And I promised that it would be continued. So uh, we're going to go back to the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where we met Eustace Clarence Scrub, a boy with a horrendous name, and as Lewis tells us, uh, he almost deserved it. Uh, And um, Eustace, uh, no simple way of actually putting it, Uh, Eustace was a prat. Uh, He was annoying, uh, obnoxious and rude. Uh, if you've ever read the book or perhaps seen the movie, the movie's nowhere near as good as the book, can I say? Well worth reading the book. Uh, you'll realise that Eustace, uh, Eustace, yes, he did deserve his name, I think. I think Lewis was too kind to him. Uh, and as they're exploring and they're searching on their quest, Eustace finds a dragon treasure. And as he uh, dreams of what he will be able to do with this money, uh, he falls asleep. Uh, dreaming somewhat dragonish kind of dreams. And as he wakes up, he has become the dragon himself. The inner dragon has been manifest on the outside and Eustace has been turned into a dragon. And he's cut off from his friends and he fears that they are going to be leaving him behind. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, he, uh, he is encountered Uh, by the lion Aslan, who takes him up the mountain to a garden, and in the garden there is a well. 
uh, and Eustace wants to bathe in the well. He's got an arm ring around his forearm. Uh, that means that it's constricting as he turned into a dragon. It's causing him horrendous pain. He wants to go and bathe in the well. Uh, but Aslan tells him that he must first undress. And so he realises that Aslan's telling him he's got, to, he's got to get rid of his dragon skin. And so he claws himself clear of number one, looks at himself in the reflection, he's still the same. Claws himself clear of number two, looks in the reflection, and the same thing has happened again. And I thought to him myself, he says, oh dear, how many skins have I got to take off? I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for a third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of its claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he just peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. I'd turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? asked Edmund. Well, I don't exactly remember that bit. But he did somehow or another in new clothes. Now, when you understand that Lewis is telling the Christian story as if it were happening in a different world, a different reality. And no surprises here, Aslan is the Jesus figure. He is the son of the king over the sea. And what Eustace is going through, what is being described here, is what Romans chapter 3 is unpacking for us. We have seen, as we have worked through the book of Romans... How futile the efforts of self-salvation that we make. And we see that it is only in the hands of Christ can we be dressed anew. We're going to unpack that. Before we do, I thought I'm going to see how much attention you've been paying. Okay. Now, the Apostle Paul, he wrote the book of Romans. Does anyone remember where he was? What city was he in, do we think he was in anyway, when he wrote the book of Romans? Corinth. Corinth, hey, he was actually near Corinth, he was at the port city, but yes, Corinth. And he had two big reasons that he wanted to write the book of Romans. Why did he want to write to a church that he had never visited before, but he wants to write to them? What's, what's the reasons? Anyone? He wants to go on a mission to Spain and thinks 
Well, I can go via Rome and across to Spain. He wants their support. And there was another reason. So that's one. Someone other than us, Ireland, the winds, yes? Yeah, yeah. And he's heard. He's got friends who've come from this church and told him that there is a Jewish part and a Gentile part, a non-Jewish part, and they are at war with each other in this church. And you'll see again and again and again the Jew and the Gentile thing coming up. Paul is trying to address this issue. So he's got those two big goals, and his one method of achieving them both is to unpack what he calls the gospel. So he says there in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the gospel just means it's a word for good news. Okay, it's, a, it's an announcement of good news, and he's not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel, the good news that he preaches, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. See the Jew-Gentile thing coming out here. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul unpacks the one gospel to achieve these two ends. And it's a great model because at the heart of the Christian life is what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Christian life consists of unfolding the implications of that gospel. And so that is what Paul is doing. And we've seen over the last three weeks with my creatively entitled sermons, the problem part one, part two and part three, that we have an issue. And it's summarised there in verses verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. We are a people under God's wrath. And not just us, but against all humanity. And Paul has been unpacking this judgment that is falling upon the godless Gentiles, but the moral people as well as well as the Jewish people who are trusting in all the things that God has given given them, but not in God himself. And Paul gets to the end in Romans 3 verse 9, and he says, we've made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one righteous, not even one. This is where we've got to. And we have got to this situation where Paul says we are under sin. Now, is that how we think of sin? I think most of us probably think of sin in terms of things that we do that we shouldn't do. Laws that we break. So it says, you know, don't say that, don't do that. And you did or you did, either of them. And so you've broken a law, you've sinned. Do we think of sin like that? But here Paul isn't talking about sins, he's talking about sin. Sin as a global thing. Sin, and he's talking about us under the power of it, literally under sin. And Jesus captures this himself in John chapter 8, verse 34. He's speaking to the Jewish people and he says, everyone who sins is a slave, a slave to sin. So here when Paul is saying, he's saying not that humanity does bad stuff, 
but that we all are under the power, under the dominion, we are ruled or enslaved by sin. We are part of what Paul talks about to the Colossians. He says, you're part of the dominion of darkness in contrast to the kingdom of the sun. So Paul is telling us that sin is the number one issue. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are enslaved to sin. Now, as you think about it, is that how you see the issues of the world that we face? Is that the big issue that you think is facing us? If we sorted this one out, is this going to make everything else better? Well, the communists disagreed. It's not a spiritual problem. Religion for them was the the opiate of the people just to make them happy while everyone just ripped them off. For the communists, the big problem was economic and if you could restore the means of production to the people, everyone would be equal and that would be a great thing and you'd have this utopia. Now, that worked really well, didn't it? All animals are equal. Some are more equal than others. All they did is they knocked down the aristocrats and they raised up the bureaucrats and the persistence, the problem persisted. It wasn't an economic problem. The economics was merely a symptom. But our society, we don't fall maybe for the communist dream. Our society, if you read the newspapers and you hear what's happening on the radio, we're all into education. If we just know the right things, everything will get better. And so the whole Safe Schools program that's coming in, you're familiar with this? Yeah? So therefore, if we can educate people, bullying will be eradicated, particularly for a particular minority. Bullying will be eradicated from our schools. But have you just noticed the bullying way that the Safe Schools program is being pushed. To disagree is to be labelled and excluded. Looks like bullying to me. It's just different people bullying different people. And in our culture, it's okay to bully people who are homophobes. Brothers and sisters, education is a good thing. Bullying is a terrible thing. Don't hear me saying we should be picking on people. But education will not solve the problem. You can go through the whole list of things and history will demonstrate again and again and again it will not be fixed because the Bible teaches us that the core of the issue is a spiritual issue. The core of the issue is sin. And Paul quotes psalm after psalm after psalm in a whole litany to give us this picture of humanity under sin. And then he brings us back to God's law and he says, you know, you've got the perfect law system. And does that solve the problem for you? It actually makes it worse, Paul tells us. Because not only does the law reveal sin, it's like a mirror. You go to the mirror and you see you've got a dirty face. But the law has no power to clean your face. But not only does the law reveal sin like that, it actually provokes sin. 
I don't know if you've ever been outside at morning tea time and seen the little sign that we put up that looks like this. Have you noticed what the littler kids tend to do? They go and they stand up and they push it over or they turn it round or they try and go around it. I've decided that what we're going to do when we want people to go into particular areas, we're going to put big signs saying, don't go here. Uh, and uh, we'll put signs saying, please go here to the other thing. And I reckon most people will actually go where we're told them not to. But it is that, isn't it? Sin is provoked by law. Just parents, tell your children not to do something. What do they automatically want to do? They want to do it. And Paul in Romans chapter 7 verse 9 actually says the law about coveting provokes coveting in his heart. Before it was there, he didn't really, he didn't go that way. But then he hears the law and the sin in his heart produces all kinds of coveting. And he is condemned. And so we get to the end of this section the end of this really dark section where we see that humanity is under a triple threat. We are objects of God's wrath, number one. We are condemned as being unrighteous, number two. And we are enslaved to sin, number three. Martin Luther talked about the, the human condition. Our problem is kind of being like a caterpillar in a ring of fire. Now, that may not have occurred to you. But what hope does this caterpillar have? None. The only hope for this caterpillar is from above. And Luther points that out vividly. He's... And Paul has demonstrated it again and again and again. You can't ignore judgment. You can't deny judgment. You can't pretend that your good deeds are good enough. You can't fall back on your heritage. It doesn't stack up. And he concludes this section by saying, every human being is accountable before God. And every human being is under sin. We need to feel the weight of that. We need to feel the despair of that. That if there is no hope from above, if Romans finished at chapter 3, verse 20, we're all going to burn. We're all going to burn. But there's a lot of Romans left to go. There is a lot of Romans left to go. A guy called Tullian Trevidian, it's quite a name, isn't it? He says this, he says, until we realise that self-salvation is impossible, we will not be interested in the one with whom all things are possible. In a mirror-like fashion, the law reveals our helplessness before the devastation and comprehensiveness of divine expectation. It shows us that we cannot meet God's standard. And that helplessness creates the space for God's amazing grace. As long as you think that there is hope within yourself, you will not look to the one alone in whom there is hope. And now Paul goes to verse 21. And what does he say? 
he says, but now. That was then. That's the human condition. We've hit the bottom of the curve. But now takes us now to the highest of heights. We've been to the depths of human depravity and need. And now Paul will take us to the heights of glory through the grace of God. Against the blackness of our sin, God will paint the glory of the gospel. He unpacks the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is probably one of the more dense passages. I could probably preach not one sermon, but five or six sermons on this and still have stuff to say. It is worth digging into deeply. He unpacks the implications of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in terms of the righteousness of God. He says, apart from the law, because you can't get righteousness by the law, the righteousness of, the God, of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So if you look at that verse, it looks like that's God's characteristic, doesn't it? That's God's uprightness that's being revealed. So God is showing us that he is upright. He is righteous. But the amazing thing happens as we go to verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. That righteousness that was God's becomes ours through faith in Christ, through faith in his death and resurrection. The righteousness that is God's, that was Christ's, is our righteousness. We cannot have a righteousness of our own, so God gives us his righteousness. It's an incredible substitution that Jesus stands in our place, takes our sin, experiences the judgment of God that we deserved so that we might never taste it. And what he tastes, what, what he deserves, the sonship, the heir of the father, the Bible tells us that that is ours. As you follow the line of Romans through, you get to 8 verse 1 and you'll see that Paul now says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Those who were condemned as unrighteous are now vindicated as righteous because there is now no accusation that can be brought because Christ has paid for it. That is the incredible thing. This righteousness is ours and it is received by faith. There in verse 22, it is given to through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There in verse 25, it is received by faith. Now, sometimes Christians get this really wrong. Sometimes Christians look at their faith and they treat it like it's a work. And we treat it like we've got to have enough faith. And if I have enough faith, God will accept me. And so, therefore, our justification, the declaration that we are right before God, doesn't rest upon 
the finished work of Jesus Christ. It actually rests upon the strength of your faith and if you've got enough. Brothers and sisters, don't turn faith into a work. Faith is nothing other than an empty hand that looks at Romans 1.18 through to 3.20 and says, nothing in my hand I bring. I have nothing to offer. I purely and simply bring the sin and Christ takes that from me. Faith is a gift. It says it clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Faith is a gift. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Not something upon which our assurance rests. We're not saved because we have faith. We're saved because we trust in what Jesus has actually done. The emphasis is on Christ and his finished work, not our faith. Not as though we earn it, but it is given freely. Guy called Stephen Westerholm says it like this. He says, faith in this sense is not a virtue naturally possessed by the believer, as though believers more than others are trusting souls. I don't know if you've ever had someone come up and say, hey, I wish I had your faith. Have you had that? As though it's some kind of virtue that you've got that makes you more deserving of salvation than them. No, that's not faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is not a virtue of ourselves. Faith is a response to the gospel message. As Abraham's faith was a response to the divine promise. God makes promises. Do you believe them? Don't turn faith into a work. It's God's promise that saves. It is the gospel that saves. It is the faith that is evoked by the power of the message itself through the power of the Spirit of God. I wish I had your faith. Ask God and you will. Go to him with a hand outstretched and say, help me to trust you. And he will answer that prayer. It is received by faith and it is given in the face of universal need. No difference, Paul says, Jew and Gentile, you can't look down on each other. Why? Because you're all sinners and you fall short of the glory of God. Some people get cranky with Christians. You guys are so exclusive. You know, Jesus alone, one name. You even sing it this morning, didn't you? No other name. Peter stood up and said, there is no other name under heaven by which people may be saved other than Jesus Christ. But think about it. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, this is the problem and there is only one cure, what do you say? I want the second cure. I want more options. There's only one option. They can give you anything else, but it's not going to work. It's the same with Jesus. If sin is the problem, you need a sin bearer. And Christ alone, amongst all the religions of the world, is the only way that sin is born. Christ alone. He achieved it through the cross. We see it there in verses 24 and 25. 
all are justified freely by his grace. That's the declared right before God, justification, through the redemption. So on what basis can we be declared right before God? It is through redemption. Now, redemption is a, a word. What do you redeem? If you've ever sold something into a pawn shop, you can redeem that. If you lived in the ancient world and you sent your, uh, your army off to fight and they got beaten, often the, uh, the enemy would round up your soldiers and then sell them into slavery. They would be the spoils of war. And sometimes there was the, the, the nobles there. They were pretty useless for anything, so you could actually sell them back. And sometimes the, the, uh, the city that sent the army out would send money to buy their soldiers back, to redeem them, to ransom them. This is the image that's being used, that Jesus ransoms us, that Jesus redeems us. And brothers and sisters, that is a costly sacrifice. It says in the Psalm, Psalm 49, verse 7, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that they should live on forever and not see decay. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be ransomed out of death and sin to which we are enslaved, it is going to cost a lot. And there is no price higher than the person of the Lord Jesus. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The second person of the Trinity became man and died on a cross to pay a price. Psalm 49, the author looks forward and he sees Jesus. No one can redeem a life, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. And in Christ God has redeemed us. So Paul unpacks the cross in terms of what it does for us. And so if we actually put our things together, we'll see that in the face of our unrighteousness, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. In the face of our slavery to sin and death, he redeems us by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So there's one problem left to face, isn't there? As Paul has presented it. We are objects of wrath. But Paul tells us that in the gospel, this has been answered too. There in verse 25, God has presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the NIV translation. Probably not very helpful. But they go that way because the word that should be there, propitiation, uh, is not a word that we use. Has anyone propitiated anything recently? You probably have. You just don't realise it. Let me give you an illustration that actually helps. Okay, uh, imagine that I would be so rude as to cause some offence to my dear lady wife. I'm, I'm the perfect husband, so this is purely hypothetical. Um, and so I can apologise for it and seek to make amends, but I might go bearing something. I might go in with a bunch of flowers. Do I pretend that the bunch of flowers actually make up for my rudeness or oversight or whatever. No. They are a gift to turn away anger. 
That would be me propitiating Karen. Propitiation is a gift that turns away anger. And Paul tells us that the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that his death and resurrection turns away the just wrath of the Father against our sin. We are no longer objects of wrath. And that is the wonder of the gospel. The human condition is met conclusively. So much so that those once under condemnation can speak to God as Father. We can rejoice that we are heirs with Christ. We can share with him in an eternity that we have no right to, but that has been freely given to us by his Father who has become our Father. And lastly, the gospel, Paul tells us, displays God's righteousness. He did this, Paul writes in the second half of verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so you go back through history and you'd say, actually, God, you told us that the penalty for sin is death and these people went on living. Unjust. No. God had put off fully punishing because he was bringing punishment to bear at the cross. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. So he punishes sin but also justifies, declares righteous those who have faith in Jesus. His righteousness both judges and saves at the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, this is what Lewis was trying to tell us in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We can try and change all we like and remain exactly where we were, as Eustace did again and again and again. We need something that can deal with the real issue, the real issue of heart, the issue of sin. And God tells us that, but now, in the gospel, this has been done once and for all. And it gives us an incredible foundation. It gives us a rock-solid place to stand. Everything else is built upon your performance. Our assurance rests upon Christ's performance. We know that if we look to ourselves, we will fail. But we know that in Christ, God has given us everything for life, for security, for hope, for a future, because it doesn't depend on you. It depends wholly and solely upon that perfect, finished work of Christ the one who bore sin for us. And so what Paul does in the next five chapters, and the whole letter to a lesser degree, but particularly the next five chapters that we're going to be looking at, he unpacks the implications of the gospel, these five verses, for the entire Christian life. And he explains how this fact, this gospel, 
is the way that God has of reaching into our hearts and transforming us and making us into the people we were meant to be, clothing us not in our righteousness, because that is filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Christ. So we can rest on the rock that is God's love for us in Christ, but that then motivates us for the rest of our life. Religion says, if I'm good enough, if I perform, if I tick the right boxes, then God might accept me. Paul tells us religion is a dead end. It will get you nowhere. But the gospel tells you, you are accepted. So now you can live for God. You can go out with the motivation that grace gives, not to earn God's acceptance, not to earn God's love, not to earn a future with him, but because that is yours. When you're dating, there's always this fear. Maybe he, maybe she will dump me. Maybe they'll break up with me. Maybe I won't be good enough. And so you strive to be accepted. So maybe the flowers haven't turned up very much in the last 23 years. Who knows? Um, But anyway, when you're married, married in the way that the Bible speaks, there should be no fear. There should be no, maybe they will reject me because they have accepted you until death do they part? Human promises break. Our sin gets in the way. In the gospel, God has married us. He has covenanted with us and nothing can break that. So now we are free to live for him. Not because we have to perform that he might love us, accept us. He does love us. He does accept us as Christ. So live for him. C.H. Spurgeon spoke of repentance after conversion. He said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have rebelled against the one who loves me so and sought my good. Brothers and sisters, see the love that God has for you, that in Christ he met your deepest need. Where under the law you were condemned as unrighteous, you now are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Where you were enslaved to sin, the blood of Christ has bought you. Brothers and sisters, when you are justly under the wrath of God, Christ's sacrifice has turned away that anger that you need never know it. I want to conclude, I realise I have been going on a bit, but brothers and sisters, if ever there's a topic to go on a bit, this is it. I want to conclude by reading to you a prayer, a prayer that speaks of the cross. 
Listen to these words. Speaks of the cross where grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son. Made a transgressor, a curse, a sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There the infinite, thy infinite attributes were magnified. The infinite atonement was made. The infinite punishment was endured. Was endured. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. A thirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made a shame, that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Saviour wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain, that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown, that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. Let's pray.